The main thing that we have done so far is we, we mostly do a revenue share. What I wonder is, for example, how much crossover there is between people that buy Race for the Galaxy and between people that buy the digital version of Race of the Galaxy and how the halo effect works there. You have to kind of put on a good face and a smile and this attitude of like, everything's going great because you're representing, you know, not only your work, but kind of representing other people's work as well. So there's just so much pressure to kind of like have that this is fine, <laughs> that face. And, and it's not always. Welcome to BizDev Quest Episode 4, the podcast about video games business people and their quest for success. I'm your host, Paolo Vernocchi. Um, the podcast returns after a bit of a hiatus. 2020 has been a crazy year for multiple reasons, uh, and in all of that craziness, there have been some Interesting developments for us at DestinyBit, which have kept me from working on the podcast. But I now look forward to record more episodes and have more conversations with people. I think one of the biggest problems we're facing right now globally um, is the lack of dialogue. The unwillingness to have conversations with people. And I think the US especially is a prime example of that. And in this regard, I really enjoyed recording today's episode. My guest is Theresa Doringer. She's the CEO of Temple Gates Games who are known for their adaptations of popular board games, such as Race for the Galaxy, Shards of Infinity, and the upcoming Role for the Galaxy. Therese is the first guest on the podcast I haven't personally met before, and I really enjoyed getting to know her, listen to her stories, and bonding over what we have in common, which is video games. We talked about how a deal for an adaptation happens, work for hire, and VR, but also we talked about the struggle of leading a studio in such crazy times. And that's what I love the most about today's episode. Uh, we both went in not knowing each other, and we came out of it discovering we had similar stories, struggles, hopes, and dreams. If we want to have a chance at solving the problems in today's world, we have to talk to each other. And if we do, we'll find out we're more similar than not. As always, please let me know if you have any feedback on Facebook and Twitter at BizDevQuest. And now, let's get to the episode. All right, Theresa, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Hi, I'm, I'm pretty good, all things considered. How about you? I'm pretty good, all things considered. <laughs> uh, yes, um, I currently escaped uh, Italy. Um, oh. Legally, of course. Uh, the government knows about it. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm spending um, about a month uh, up in Lithuania, uh, where my girlfriend lives. Um, it's crazy over here. Like uh, It's like the virus never happened. Uh, oh, really? Everybody's out. Yeah, everybody's outside. Nobody wears a mask. Uh, they closed down the country pretty much right away. Um, and so they had like very, very few cases. And it's it's kind of surreal, actually. It's like it's an alternate reality. Uh, you're in California, right? Yeah, yes, I am. <laughs> and I assume it's not fun over there. I I am in, I, like, I have not left my apartment since, uh, let's see, gosh, um, March, February, around that. That's a good idea. Uh, the only thing I've, the only thing I've gone outside to do is to move my car for street sweeping, which they don't let you off the hook for that. Well, they did for a bit. Um, so I really don't have a sense of it other than what I'm reading on the news, um, which is terrifying. So yeah, um, yeah, it, it sounds like it's not going great. I think our cases are higher than they've ever been. Um, so we're struggling. It sounds like. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about. Uh some other kinds of struggle. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's talk about game development, which is also a struggle. Uh, well, first of all, um, 
how is it going on the sort of like work for hire side? Um, because like, you know, on the publishing side, on the, the rest of the industry is pretty much business as usual, more or less. How is it going on the work for hire side? Do you find it it's harder now to find clients and stuff like that? You know, we've kind of lucked out timing wise. Uh, work for hire is something that our studio has done in order to sort of supplement the income from our games as we're launching up our sort of like ramping up our internal IPs and the games we're making with other people. Um, we haven't we haven't done a lot of work for hire since we haven't done any work for hire um, since the pandemic began. We do team up with um publishers to license their IP, but we technically self-publish those games. So when we take a board game, for example, um, and we do a digital version of that, we are uh, publishing it on the Apple Store or Android or Steam ourselves. Um, so I don't think that quite counts as work for hire. Um, so fortunately, we haven't had to kind of do the same thing where you know a lot of work for hire comes from mixing and mingling at conferences and um, um, having a strong social network presence where you're out there and you're putting yourself out there, you're showing off your work. That's something we really can't do right now because a, a lot of the conferences have been shut down. Yeah. We were scheduled to be speaking at GDC. We were scheduled to go to Gen Con, things like that. And we're, we're just not um, doing anything like that. Some conferences are online, but I do think it's a little bit of a different experience. Um, yeah. I find that those online ones, it's easier to talk with the people you already know because when you see sort of like a list of 100 or 200 or 1,000 people in the chat room, you kind of, you know, a lot of people just seem to talk with the people they already know, um, which has its limitations. Yeah, indeed. Um, I am a big fan of what you guys are doing. Um, first of all, because I'm a big fan of board games, uh, my career actually started there. Um, and so I'm a big fan of all the ports. Um, well, ports is probably just, a you know, reductive, you're actually <laughs> doing a lot of like original work uh, on making these games, um, digital. Um, is that a niche where you... Um, is that a niche that you actively pursued, uh, that you found yourself in, that you evolved into? How did that come about? Yeah. Um, well, I saw that you have developed Dice Legacy, which, you know, we should <laughs> chat about that at some point because, oh my gosh, that looks so up my alley oh, with the you. video games and the board game side of it. And I, I wanted to hear a little bit more about your history in board games. But um, so for us, I've been a board game fan since uh, like around 2009, 2008, 2009, mm -hmm. where I was introduced to sort of like the, the new wave of board games through a board game club at my office. And really what I was doing there was I was trying to make friends who were developers and they had this club and I just was like, let me make friends and I'll join the club. And it turns out that I really, really liked these board games and I was totally late to the party on them. Um, you know, I grew up playing like Shoots and Ladders and Gin Rummy and that kind of sort of era of, of gaming that were just a, a lot different sort of like strategy wise and in the intensity. So you know, our studio is going along. We've been making, um, you know, we made a roguelike flying carpet game. Um, we've made, uh, I, I mean, Cannon Brawl, which is sort of this like um, um, artillery game. So I'm st stumbling over my words. Um, but we, we, I went to Gen Con and was able to meet the team that created Ascension and then sort of just that connection. And we were looking for our next game to do. 
And that sort of led into working on digital board games. And we haven't stopped since. So well, good for you. And and I hope you keep doing it. Um and and also and I also wonder um how much crossover there is between uh the board game world and the video games world because I follow both. Um but I kind of follow um like for example on the video game side I follow like other designers and journalists and people like that and they all talk about video games and on the board game side I follow I don't know channels like the Dice Tower um and other people like that and they kind of seem like two separate worlds but then they kind of come together at places like PAX and stuff like that and so what I wonder is for example um how much crossover there is between people that buy Race for the Galaxy and between people that buy the digital version of Race of the Galaxy and how the Halo effect works there. Do you do you know anything about that? Um, a little bit. I'm learning a lot more as we go. Uh, so we're lucky in that the, the couple of designers that we've worked with so far just happen to have a lot of experience on the digital side of things. We, we work with Tom Lehman, who designed Race for the Galaxy. He just so happens to have been a programmer, <laughs> like as his day job when um, he was doing that. And uh, and Justin Gary, who designed Ascension, he created Soulforge, so he dipped his toe into the digital side. But I think you're right for a like vast majority, there is kind of this big divide between the board game world and the video game world. And um, sort of, I feel like it, it's been a struggle because I feel like I put my whole career energy into the video game world um, as I was getting started. And I feel like I really had to sort of start over learning about sort of the culture of board games, who are the major important players, what's going on in this space, keeping up with, like you said, the Dice Tower or the the different news outlets and the personalities behind them. And it is kind of surprising how siloed off they are. Although I think we're seeing with games like with Dice Legacy, what you're doing and with um, things like Armello, there is kind of this bleeding that's happening between like, you know, board game components and mechanics and digital experiences. And I think people are um, sort of like crossing between the two silos a little bit more recently. Yeah. Um, what what kind of, I don't know, this is something that, from the outside, the board game world looks fantastic. Um, when you actually look into it and, and like you want to really work into it, um, you realize it's very tiny. Um, like uh, the numbers that the industry pulls together um, are kind of comparable to one big AAA release on the video game side, which is, I mean, it's growing, off, uh, obviously, and I think Kickstarter is pulling crazy numbers. Um, but it is pretty tiny. Um, so, for example, if you if you want to do a digital version of a board game, um, are you looking specifically at those board games that kind of broke the, let's say, 2,000 copies um, threshold, which so many board games kind of stop at, and just go for the, um, I don't know, it's kind of weird to call them triple A's, but you know, you know what I mean, like the the, the big successes, uh, the Agricolas, the um, the size of this world. Like, do you think it it becomes worth it to do a digital version of those games, or do you think that maybe a smaller game can still do good, just you know, carried by its good design or something? I think there's there's a couple ways to approach that question. Um, for us, we we really have chosen the games that have been sort of the breakout hits. And the reason for that is exactly what you, what you 
would seem to expect. Um, our sales of digital versions are really kind of, um, the, they're kind of capped at how well the game did physically. So if the game hasn't done very well physically, um, you're really going to have a, a tough time to sell your digital versions. That's not to say you couldn't um, reimagine a game or find a way to make a game a lot bigger digitally than its physical counterpart. I think it's just a really tall order. So, you know, if you're coming at it as a developer and you're saying, okay, should I take a chance on this game that's just like, maybe it's still in development board game wise, you know, like on the physical side and, it, you know, it hasn't even been released. So you don't really know if it's going to be a big hit or not. Um, and I'd say you can take that risk, but you probably need something to counter counterbalance it. So for us, you know, when someone approaches us with a game that is less well known, you know, usually we'll need to offset the risk with upfront capital or a guarantee on sales to make sure that we're not sinking a bunch of development costs into something that's not going to recoup the sales. Um, it just so happens that the more popular games are you know, it, it seems to work out that they're, um, they're motivated to, to get a digital version out there because not only is the digital version satisfying those players who are seeking to play that game in their own time, but it also acts as a kind of like a marketing leg for them. You know, the more people that are playing the digital version, the more there's kind of this buzz yeah. in that realm about that IP that can drive the physical sales. Um, yeah, no, I, I totally get it. Um, it, do you find yourself chasing after um sort of like companies and 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 ips or is it the other way around because I, again i don't know what perception the board game world has of the video game world like sometimes i speak with designers in it and they i i find it i don't know it, it's weird that they don't know exactly about the dynamics of our world uh, but i assume it's also weird that we don't know about the dynamics of their world but for example i think that every game designer should kind of dabble in both um, mostly because board games are just pure design. Um, but coming back to the question, uh, do you find yourself chasing after the board game world or the other way around? I, I do feel that we have been in the like sort of wooer position. Um, and, and partially that's just because our company is small and we didn't really exist a long time ago. So people don't even necessarily really know who we are. Um, so yes, we've been in the war position. We've done a couple of titles. We did Race for the Galaxy. We did Ascension in, in VR and we're um, releasing Roll for the Galaxy soon. So we're starting to get a little bit more people understanding that our studio exists and we're available with the service. And now we are getting more people approaching us. And then it's just a matter of sort of like juggling our development schedule. Can we take these IPs? Um, and the, the neat thing is, like you said, it's kind of a tight industry. And so what's happened is there's other board game development studios, uh, like Handelabra Games that did Sentinels of the Multiverse. And, you know, um, we are friends with each other. So if we can't handle a board game, develop uh, a board game port because it doesn't fit in our schedule, we can just say, hey, we know this other great studio. Um, and I think because the industry is so small, uh, it, it does kind of like help to have those, um, you know, there's like five other <laughs> board game app development studios on in your Rolodex that you can kind of uh, collaborate with. That's so cool. No, that that's very cool. And by my experience, it, it's always been like that, like uh, companies looking out for each other. Um, I don't know. It's 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 a weird industry. I don't know. When you tell it to people, it's, it's so weird. But we're, we're sort of like in perfect competition with each other. Uh, everybody can coexist, at least for now. And at least at this scale, uh, I'm sure that um, 
kind of the Gran Turismo's and Need for Speeds have their own, you know, uh, competition going on. But at this scale, it's um, it's cool to be here, I guess. Yeah, I don't think like like you said, sort of. <laughs> it's a little bit like small potatoes compared to digital, like the release scale, like the the financial scale is so different. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like if anyone's in board games, they're not necessarily in it for the money. Oh, no, um, they're in it for the, the passion and the craft. And and I, you know, and I think that 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 is sort of reflected in sort of the like trustworthiness and and integrity I've seen from the people who do work in this industry. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I, I don't want to put you in a uncomfortable position, but I kind of, you know, I'm, I'm a curious person, so uh, I'll just ask: um, How does a a, a porting of, let's say, uh, again, I'm, I apologize for calling them portings, but you know what I mean? How can like the transposition of Rolls for the Galaxy, uh, sorry, of Race for the Galaxy, um, happens in the sense that you know, I kind of know my board games people. I know that they're not. Uh, rolling in cash. Um, so it's maybe difficult for them to go to a studio and just hire them out and be like, hey, work on this, please, for the next uh, one year, we'll pay all your costs, whatever. Um, can you maybe just uh, hint at how the business side of things work in those kind of collaborations? Sure. Um, so every deal that we've done has been a little bit different. And um, the main thing that we have done so far is we we mostly do a revenue share, which is really nice on the um, the license holder of um, of a board game IP because it means that they don't necessarily have to give us any money to front the cost of development. We're willing to front that cost as a studio ourselves, um, and and then we just divvy up the sales as we get them. Um, <clears throat> that's been something that has worked out for us so far. But like I said, if we were going to take a um, lesser known game or something that was more of a risk, um, uh, we we probably would ask for that upfront ca capital. But you know, so far um, that's what we've done, and it seems to have worked out pretty pretty okay. Good, and, and I'm and I'm really glad. Um, how many people are working at Temple Gates Games uh, right now? We're just a couple of people full time, and then we have a handful of contractors that we we um, get help with on like the visual effects side of things, AI side of things. Uh, we get audio help um, as as we go. Right, got it's it. Pretty pretty tiny. Yeah, no, that that that's fair. I mean, uh, we're also pretty tiny, and there's a gajillion of tiny studios. Um, uh, you know, you are the first guest that I have that I sort of like on this side of defense uh you know uh, i i spoke with um mostly people in publishing um and you're the first developer uh and you're also the first uh ceo developer that i have on this on this podcast <laughs> and as a ceo developer uh you know i until very recently for some interesting uh changes that have happened uh up until recently um i used to open kind of like the bank account page of my company and immediately in my head go okay that's six months of life okay let's go let's go work uh is it the same for you do you have like the kind of ceo anxiety uh about it um yeah probably <laughs> um yes looking at the the financial spreadsheet is uh in in video game stuff can be super stressful <laughs> um uh yeah, 
yeah um I'm how not... do you cope with it i guess <laughs> i guess is my question i, I you know i i I'm I'm trying to hire you as a as a therapist for now for a second here. <laughs> it's like uh, how do you I mean uh, does that fool you? Does that give you anxiety? Does that um, I don't know make you want to plan things? I feel like personally, and I think this is true for a lot of people in video games. Probably a lot of people in board games. I feel like I work the best when there's a fire under my butt. Right. And so <laughs> when um, when it gets really real looking at the finances. I, I feel like I try to take that as like, okay, well, you know, if we don't have a ton of runway, then we have to just like work really hard and we'll we'll somehow make it. Um, it does feel like it's always a struggle. And I don't know if that's just being an artist um, or living in this ridiculously expensive town. Um, it just feels like, gosh, it is <laughs> it is just such a struggle to like, get a game out the door and pay rent and keep people happy and keep, attract, you know, quality talent to the studio and all these things that, I don't know, I don't know if everyone talks about them, but there should be some kind of like video game therapy support group for people yeah. in the studios. Because <laughs> you, you have to have that like, um, it was like the stiff upper lip. You have to kind of put on a good face and a, sm you know, and a smile and this attitude of like, everything's going great because you're representing, you know, not only your work, but you know, when you're working with other IPs, you're kind of representing other people's work as well. Yeah. So, so there's, a, there's just so much pressure to kind of like have that, this is fine. <laughs> like that face. Um, and, and it's not always, um, but the nice thing is, I guess working on these digital board game ports, I don't mind if you call them that I call them adaptations, it's, okay. you know, six to one half dozen of the other. The nice thing is that we've started having enough releases out there between the expansions that we've done and the, the games themselves that we kind of can predict what our sales are going to be. So now we can say, okay, the physical board game has this many sales. Okay, we can predict we're going to make this many digitally. We know basically how much money to pour into this project or how much time to pour into this project in order to make sure that we're financially sound. Um, and that's only getting, that's, that's sort of like, we're only getting um, more and more precise on that prediction, the more titles we have out there. Um, so that's been really helpful to kind of like deal with the constant anxiety. But that's but that's very cool. I mean, now that you are in that sort of like uh, flow of things, uh, it's like the the previous success fuels the next one, and now you can predict things and can be a little bit more um, sure that things are going to be okay. I guess, um, and that makes me wonder: um, was there a lot of planning in getting here, or was there a lot of playing it by ear? There has been quite a lot of playing it by ear, but I think that sounds kind of like, well, we don't know what we're doing. And, and that's definitely partially true. You know, we're, I feel like anytime you do something that hasn't been done before, you're sort of like cutting the trail yourself, making lots of mistakes. Um, but I also feel that um, having a small size, you know, I, I was talking about this idea a little bit before where you can run a board game studio kind of like you play a strategy board game. You identify the resources that you have and you try to create an engine that exploits those resources to give you a little bit of an edge. And, you know, if you're a small studio like yours was, you know, or ours is currently, um, 
one of your, one of the things, you know, the resources you have is kind of like this like nimbleness quotient. You, you have the ability to pivot if a really amazing opportunity comes up. Yeah. And, you know, like my last company that I used to work for, Electronic Arts, thousands and thousands of people, they can't just pivot on a dime because the overhead to making a, a strategic shift like that is just going to be, I mean, the amount of hiring, the um, just, there would just be so much cost to it. Yeah. When you're a small company, it really does make sense to kind of use that, I think, as 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 well as you can. So I will say we have pivoted around a lot. You know, we were doing lots of VR work. We're doing board games now. Before that, um, we're kind of more um, sort of like twitchy games. Um, but I think I think we're leaning into our to our sort of like resource profile, and I think we're doing okay with it. Yeah. And um, speaking of VR, that's something that um, I don't know if it's fair to say that you tried uh, and. Uh, I don't know, you, you're going to tell me uh, with uh, what results. Uh, but I guess everybody was in a sort of like a VR craze for six months. Uh, it seemed like VR was going to be the next big thing. And, you know, various people were excited for various reasons at various levels. Um, I guess there was a lot of VC money at some point in VR and, and stuff like that. Um, I think that as a developer, it's very exciting and it's very fun. Uh, and it's kind of unfortunate that there's not a lot of VR devices out there. Is that something that you wish to revisit in the future as maybe the market expands again? Or is it something, I don't know, that you, it's kind of dormant for you and that you wanna, you, you're ready to go at any point uh, with it? Or maybe you're developing something and you, you can't tell us, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, um, I think it, once you've developed in VR, there is this... Maybe it's just because we were on the, you know, I would say we were on the front of it, although plenty of people will argue, no, VR happened 10 years ago, or, you know, everyone has sort of their like, I was, you know, I've been in VR for however long. But um, when we were doing it, it was a magical space for me as a designer because it felt like all the problems you're solving have not been solved and you create a solution and then everyone else is using that solution. Yeah. People were telling me that they took this like UI, you know, configuration that I come up with for one of my games and that they, they were using it in their games. And th that wasn't just with me. I think that was happening across the industry. And, you know, and maybe that's just because it was sort of like a, a you know, like a nascent medium and that's going to happen. Any, anytime you have a new thing, everything is going to be an innovation for some period of time and everyone's going to be like collaborating in that way. That was thrilling to be a part of, you know, for us financially, it was difficult if we weren't getting the funding to make sales um, for our VR work that we were doing. Um, but it was a, a really lovely thing to be a part of the community of it. I mean, gosh, I mean, board games have such a phenomenal community. VR had also this brilliant community Everyone was, it felt like this cheerleader out of necessity. <laughs> like yeah. we all had to be cheerleading for it because if we weren't, nobody would. Um, and, you know, it was just kind of a phenomenal moment to be a part of it. And I hope that we can do more work in the future. Um, but right now, uh, right now, it there is something to, so you asked me a little bit earlier about, um, what do our deals look like? And could you take a, a game that's like 
less well known and make a game out of it. I mean, theoretically, we could take a game that's not so well known and get a bunch of capital up front. Maybe they got investment or maybe they're just rich or something like that. They give us capital up front to make it. But as developers, there's a part of our soul that goes into the games. Like we we made sacrifices. We missed out on events with our friends because we're working late hours. And if you make a game like that and people don't play it because either the platform is immature or or people or maybe the marketing hype is just not there for some game that's not well known, it does kind of hurt, you know? Right. Like it's this is like you know, this, it's like your baby and you're putting it out there and you want people to find enjoyment. You're not just necessarily looking for money. Again, I think if you were just looking for money as a programmer, you go into all kinds of other industries besides gaming and probably be a little bit better off. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think I think a lot of us are looking for recognition or connection with other people. There is something more of an art to it. Um, I see that with a lot of people in the industry. Yeah. And um I kind of want to touch on this. Um, you mentioned that luckily you haven't done any uh, more work for hire since the pandemic started. So let's say uh, for the whole 2020, uh, but you did a bunch in the past. Um, and uh, you said the word soul, you know, what the game does to your soul. Uh, and I was wondering, what did work for hire do for your soul? Because <laughs> for me, I mean... I, I find it challenging, you know, when you present me a problem, it's like, hey, we have to make this game for this company and whatever. And, you know, it's still, I can still find the fun of it. But at some point, my kind of, it does something to my soul where I'm like, ah, it's not for me. How is it for you? Oh, gosh, that's, that's such a good point. Um, I think, you know, we, we were lucky in a couple of ways on our work for hire projects. Um, most, most all of our work for hire was in VR. And we were operating with a custom C++ engine that we have built in-house. And so all of the work for hire had this added benefit of subsidizing uh, more specialized tools and features into our custom engine that we could then benefit from going forward. And you know, you might say, well, we're not doing VR anymore, so the return on investment has dried up. But it really hasn't. We've taken those into um, our, our board game ports. So um, in... Some of our board games, we created a, so we were calling it a fab editor, this 3D, basically a 3D UI editor. We are now using that, that we created to do Race for the Galaxy in VR. Um, we're now using that in our, our 2D board game ports because sometimes it, it's, it's helpful to have um, 3D components or 3D animations of even with 2D assets. So for us, I think a saving grace is it felt like an investment in what we were trying to do. And, and not all of that had the sort of foresight, the sort of like we've made decisions since then to again capitalize on those investments that we made in the past. But also I will say like we worked um, with Discovery Channel on the Discovery VR app, which, you know, was like something I'm, I'm kind of proud of. I think that the, this, the team behind the content through those 3D videos that were showing off like amazing things from around the world and kind of bridging physical distance gaps. You know, you could go and see some content from another culture and become more familiar with it. You know, that was just something that, you know, I'm very pleased to have my name attached to. I think that the the people there were doing such phenomenal work. So, um, and also that's something that's had 
millions of downloads. So it feels like, oh gosh, someone saw the work that we did, which is helpful. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I do think that a lot of work for hire stuff can be soulless. And um, if there's some way you can find, just treat it like you said, like a, a even if it's just investing in your problem solving or your sort of like your personal technical cachet, if you can treat it as an investment in yourself, I think it doesn't feel so much like a cost. Right. Um, it, this, there's something that you said before that it's kind of buzzing in the back of my head. So I have to sneak in this question. Um, you said this expensive town. Um, I live, I live in, uh, Ravenna, North of Italy. Um, not a lot of action happening there. Uh, not a lot of game development, not a lot of much, but it's a pretty city. Um, but I hear a lot of people uh, around the Bay Area uh, complaining about, you know, how expensive it is. And, you know, it's kind of a crazy place to be. Um, have you ever considered moving? Um, well, I have been recently with this um, with this pandemic. Um, I grew up in the Bay Area. I've been here my whole life. So there is I've you know, I have like <laughs> I've never left the nest. So there is a part of it that seems daunting. Like I'm trying to ship games and manage a company and like dealing with moving out into a new region that I've never had to experience before just sounds like, oh, that's another thing mentally, you know, another thing to, to juggle. Um, but I will say during the pandemic, I'm living in San Francisco and it is ridiculously expensive. And it does feel like the value that you get out of living in a really expensive city sometimes is all the amenities and attractions and the cool nightlife and the arts and, and things like that. And those are just not really available right now. So I have been looking and fantasizing about just <laughs> moving wherever and paying like, um, so much less in rent. And, um, and you know, it's something our company, we, we have, um, a lot of our contractors are remote, so it's something that wouldn't really affect the company too much. Although I will say I'm in this fantastic shared workspace down in the mission and the people there is just such a um, beautiful group of artists working there that I would I would miss out on. And there is there is something to that. Like the Bay Area is so expensive, but at the same time, there are a lot of really rich contact opportunities here right? Um, mm -hmm. because of like the tech boom that we've had. I mean, I mentioned that Tom Lehman happens to be local and we started working with him. There's another board game designer that I'm working with upcoming who is local as well. And, um, and then a lot of the people that we work with that we, you know, hire or uh, contract with happen to be here. So there is there, I think there might be a cost to going somewhere else. Um, and just like losing out on opportunities. Yeah, that's always something that I hear about, you know, people in that area of there's just a lot of networking happening. Yes. And a lot of places that if you are there at the right moment, you know, just talk with the right person. Yes. Um, yeah, we did um, get um, an opportunity to work with um, Oculus. And, you know, that's like, well, they're familiar with me probably because they know me from around conferences and stuff that happened in this area. So, you know, if, if we weren't around, then would those opportunities come up? Right. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of want to get into more heavy questions, but first I, let me break it up with something uh, more fun. Um, I'm a big fan of your one minute cooking videos. <laughs> um, they are brilliant. Uh, first of all, I'm a big fan of anybody that uses Twitter or any other social media in a different way. Um, I, I'm kind of allergic to Twitter. I said this multiple times, but you know, just posting a one minute recipe or just one minute showing me how do you cook something as a fan of cooking, that's 
brilliant. I love them. <laughs> um, is that is that an outlet for you of just uh, I don't know uh, cooling off after a long day or just uh, trying to stay sane during the quarantine? I think so. Um, I I just recently started cooking. I never grew up knowing how to cook. My mom uh, was a game developer. My dad was a programmer, and uh, cooking was not on the menu, so to speak. <laughs> but um, good one. Yeah, but um, I've been having so much fun learning. I have been posting videos. And if you look closely, you'll notice that I'm doing everything wrong. And people point it out to me. And it's actually been really helpful. It's almost like having a beta out there. <laughs> and um, and people, you know, with our, with our board games and our video games, we put betas out there. People give all kinds of feedback on bugs and things that are wrong. And then we can go and fix them. And I've gotten so many tips based on these cooking videos. Recently, someone told me, oh, what the heck? You didn't put... Um, lemon juice on your artichokes before you steam them or boil them. So of course they turn brown. And then someone else said, oh my, your cutting board is sliding all around. You need to put a wet rag underneath it. And then there's also a garlic peeler. So I don't know. I I think people can be afraid of social media because there are so many brilliant, talented people out there showing their craft and it can be really um, daunting to put something up there. And people treat it like it has to be you have to be putting something world-class up. Right. And for me, it's been really nice to just be like, nah, this is my, you know, I'm learning to cook and I'm making mistakes and here I am, I'm a human being. Um, I kind of like thought about that a little bit with your conversation with Chris that you had because he is so young yeah. and talking about sort of that comparison that you can do with other people, like where are you at in your career at what age? And they feel like social media is a big part of that sort of negative comparison. Yes. Like when I was growing, I'm going kind of digressing here, but when I was growing up, you know, I did a lot of drawing. And when I was in middle school, I was voted the mo the best artist. And when I was in high school, I was voted the best artist. And then social media happened and I could see that I was nothing. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, but for a while in my life, I, f I found that like, being in that small pool gave me a lot of motivation and excitement to do it because I felt like I was really good. I felt like I was the kind of like top banana. As soon as I could see around the world, everyone is so much better. It really does kind of, I think, tear away at your, or it can tear away at your, um, your willingness to put yourself out there because it's kind of embarrassing. You know, you can see that what you're putting out there is so much worse than a lot of people. Um, and I think that it's just like really hard to overcome. So anyway, I wish people posted more fails. <laughs> well, just make everyone else feel better. Yeah, no, well, you said you said it can, but uh, let me tell you, like it, I saw your cooking and I went, "Oh my god, I'm terrible at cooking." <laughs> um yeah, so okay, so I had the same reaction that you had, you know, looking at those artists. Uh and to me it's very cool to know that people are giving you tips and and so it makes me want to, you know, put myself out there more. But um, I don't know that motiv that motivates me. You know that what I said la during the last episode about, you know, jujitsu and art martial arts is that it teaches you where you are in the world, uh, but also it teaches you that you can go up. You know that you can get better. Mm. And so I consider you, you know, a higher belt than me in in cooking. Uh, good job. Uh, I'll get there. But you know, it. Uh, what I love about cooking, I don't know. I'm, I'm interested to know what you love about cooking. But what I love about cooking is that. What I put in, I get out. So if I put in effort and I put in, you know, technique, I get a good dish. And if I not don't put in effort, don't put it technique, I get a bad dish. So it's very like meritocratic in of myself. You know, it's it's all about me. 
Um, how is it for you? Yeah, that's interesting. There is like that one-to-one predictive kind of, I mean, sometimes you screw things up, but yeah, it also is just so nice to like work with something physical. I think like we are always in the computer in the bits and bytes and everything feels so sort of like meta and like intangible. And I, food is just like you can touch it yeah. and you can look at it and you can feel it and it rewards your senses. And I think that is just this like deficit I have <laughs> like through my day as I'm working on video games. Um, that No, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, it was the same for me. Like, um, I think it was the same for a lot of people during this pandemic. I feel like we kind of realize how much we are detached from nature. And a lot of people picked up, I don't know, carpeting or, uh, you know, started to DIY projects. And uh, that aspect of touching things and, and, I don't know, hammering a nail, stuff like that, I kind of miss it as well. So apparently you too. And so that's pretty common, I guess. Yeah. I kind of like, like you said, a lot of people are doing it right now. So it kind of feels like there is something like where it feels like you're part of this thing with everyone else. Like everyone's posting their cooking videos. It's not, I'm not the only person doing it. I'm sure I'm doing it because I'm kind of group thinking along with everyone else, seeing everyone do it, seeing that's something I could be doing with my time. And, um, the fact that we're kind of like all rolling into dough and bread making, we're all so separate. Like I feel so partitioned off from everyone, but I guess like just kind of doing something in tandem, like yeah, in sync, there is something that feels kind of human about it. Yeah, indeed. Um, speaking of human, let's go back to the heavy questions. Oh. <laughs> uh, um, well, this is the question that I asked um, Chris and, and now I'm very interested to ask you is that um, how do you feel you're doing on your quest uh, and where do you want to go next? Hmm, goodness. I mean, I'm feeling pretty optimistic right now. Um, there is this giant kind of survivor guilt. I think I saw someone, I wish I remember who it was, someone on Twitter was talking about this and I thought it was a really neat idea that like our industry right now, video games is so resilient to this pandemic mm. relative to other industries. You know, we can, many of us still make games from home. We can work on our computers. We don't necessarily need to rely on in-person interactions and we have stores available to sell things on. Um, so in this kind of gross way, I feel optimistic that I'll be able to continue on my quest. And I know that's like really kind of grounded in like the right now. But at the same time, I feel like, well, gosh, I mean, what does it matter if you can do your quest when all these other people are stunted in their ability to do their quest? Um, and then, you know, are they even going to want to spend their money on games or, are you know, like, so I do feel like these like kind of, you know, on the one hand, I'm feeling like very optimistic. I'm, I'm feeling like I'm, happy with the game that I'm putting out there. Roll for the Galaxy is coming out very soon. Um, but I'm I'm just nervous about what's going to happen. I have no idea um, where the world is going and if I'm going to be sort of locked away in my box of my apartment for <laughs> years to come um, without human contact working on these games. And that feels a little lonely. Yeah, I hear you. 
yeah, yeah, I don't know. That gives me a little bit of pause. Um, the survivor thing. Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't exactly feel guilt. Uh, or I guess I didn't feel guilt until you brought it up. <laughs> no. I thought you bring it up. It's like, yeah. Well, no. I mean, you know, you're giving me a new perspective. It's like, uh, yes, we're doing good. Um, but a lot of people aren't. Uh, and I don't know exactly for how long we will, you know, be doing good. Because uh, people are buying a bunch of games now. But in six months? I don't know. So uh, that is interesting. But I, you know, just my two cents looking from the outside. Uh, it seems like you know what you're doing. Um, you've been at it for a long, 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 long time. Um, Temple Gates Games is uh, almost seven years old, right? So... Um, I think that's pretty cool. Uh, you know, as a CEO, I look at you and I'm like, okay, she pulled this amount of money, you know, to just make it so far. So they're no, they know what you're doing and, and they probably will keep doing great things in the future. Um, so I guess I'm not worried for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. That is nice to hear. I think it's really hard. I mean, I think that's why what we're we do what we do because we are able to criticize ourselves. And in the one hand that helps us become better, but as, you know, as, as the person who's like doing that criticism, I think it, you can kind of get stuck in it. And it's helpful to hear that, you know, from the outsider perspective, it looks great. <laughs> oh no. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're pretty got great games, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, I, I, I got to respect it. This is something that I guess um, is not in the, you know, people don't think a lot about, but every time a company has survived for multiple, multiple, multiple years, it means that they know what they're doing because it's, it's so difficult out there. Um, so, you know, good job. Um, speaking of which, um, would you like to go back to do original IPs at some point? That's a good question. Um, you know, it's funny. A lot of people ask us if we would ever like to do our own game. And it's funny because it's like, well, that's kind of what I started with. And it is so hard to get people to care about an original IP. And I think a lot of times, I don't know, maybe this is sort of like self-excusing, but I think it doesn't always even have to do with the like merits or quality of that IP. Sometimes it's just what was hot right now or who made a cool video about it. And and kind of being at the whims of that chancery is just so stressful <laughs> that I'm really and I and I like really appreciate other people's artwork. So having a chance to work with other people's art um, is just really fun for me. I mean, I love board games. I, when I was working at Maxis, um, one of my jobs was to do the website. And I loved taking the stuff that the artists were making, taking the game ideas and like finding a way to like communicate all about this and make my own little thing. Like it's the website. It's sort of separate from the game sort of um, build, <laughs> but working with what someone else has created and putting it all together and making it feel good um, has been something I've been really like happy doing. It just feels fun. And there's a, there's a relief, there's a relief of the pressure um, there's no question of like, is what you're doing of value? You can just spend your time executing. And I, I find that very, very, um, peaceful. Mm. 
So I'm not like itching to get back to original IP. I do get that it has like this reverence. Like when you make original IP, people respect that because it is such a risk and it is so hard to make it happen. And so anyone who is doing that has like infinite respect from me. Um, But I think a part of that respect is also because people know it is it is so risky to do. Um, And I'm I'm not sure I want to be back in that hot seat. That is interesting. That is very interesting. Um, you mentioned Maxis. Obviously, um, you worked at Maxis slash EA for quite a while. Um, what did you? Um, what is sort of like the piece of knowledge or something that you learned there that you brought over um, to Templegate? That's interesting. Well, I guess practically speaking, there was a fellow there um, named Brad Smith, and he was working on this. Uh, JavaScript-based UI editor. This isn't such a piece of wisdom. It's just something I learned. Um, So I was doing UI work. He was trying to kind of like sell his tool within the company because that's what happens. People are making various tools. They need users. And so he was helping me learn how to use his tool. And I just, and coming from like sort of like doing this web stuff into doing this like JavaScript UI, which used all this web knowledge that I already have with JavaScript, um, was just so fun. And I think just that UI sense, I was working on the SimCity UI over there and, um, and now with board games, which are like just UI, it has been really fun to kind of just basically take this nugget and just double down on it and just be like, this is what I'm doing with my life. I am doing UI out the wazoo. Um, and, and, and I feel like having that, like having, having something you can like just really specialize on gives you that sense of craft. Like it gives you the sense of like, all right, we have such a small team and we can only accomplish so much with a small team because your resources are limited, your time, your work hours, et cetera. But like, if you can kind of like find a way to like, um, magnify a very niche mastery, which is basically what we've done. Like we've, we've do so much UI work. Um, I think that it can feel like you're contributing something like we're doing new things in the world that people haven't done before, um, with our UI and, and that, that is very fulfilling. Um, I one other thing that I really respect uh, about you is that you can and do wear a lot of hats. Um, you know, from the development side, the art side, uh, the business side. Um, is UI the most fun hat to wear for you, or, or is it something else? Uh, yes, I think so. I mean, I do wear a lot of hats, and I, this was a big problem for me at EA. Um, I was trying to get a promotion, and they were like, "Pick a lane. Do you want to be a programmer? <laughs> do you want to be an artist? Do you want to be a producer? Do you what? Like, what do you want?" And I didn't. I was like, "I don't know. I want to do all of it." And and it is really nice to have a small company where you have to do all of it. Um, there's no option. And if you're a, if you're a total specialist, I know I was just saying we can specialize in UI, but if you're a total specialist and you don't want to do something, like I, I noticed. I noticed a lot of people in industry really turn their nose up at marketing. They say, oh, marketing, you know, there's just this attitude about it that is really negative. People look down on it. I'm not exactly sure where it comes from, but if you're unwilling to do marketing and you go start your own company, good luck. You know, you have to be able to embrace all the different roles and not turn your nose up at them. And um, yeah, I think, I mean, like I also do our marketing. I, you know, could probably be better at it, but 
Yeah, I, I suppose UI is kind of like my my favorite. But it's it is really nice to be able to switch. You know, you can get stuck on a problem. It could get like um, you know, very difficult. You can get kind of like writer's block doing UI or something like that. You don't know how to solve a problem. You don't know how to like resolve this conflict between the components that you see on the screen. And then you can just say, okay, well, instead of doing this, I'm going to plan for this conference or I'm going to work on my network or um, you can kind of like shift modes. And I feel like that is a nice way to reset and give yourself that this is sort of like back burner brain space to sort of solve the problem you were stuck on without it being front of mind. Um, and I, I, I think that's um, kind of cool. And it, it isn't so available at bigger companies. They do want you to specialize so much. I think you can't really take your main thread and sort of back burner it. Yeah. Um, you did give uh, a talk a while back on networking, uh, networking while indie. Um, it was a pretty interesting talk. Uh, and uh, you said, you know, work on your network. Um, I do wonder, how is that going to change now? Uh, because I assume that, you know, most of your networking was coming from events. Um, do you have any plans going forward uh, about not going to events anymore? Um, that is something I do. I feel that that guilt I was talking about before. Um, I think that what happened with me, I think I put so much energy into the community because I love the community. It's so fun. And I like love hanging out with people. Um, is I feel like I built a solid community. Well, I, I shouldn't say built, but like I, I found a solid community. I found a lot of people that I care about. And I think I kind of have that, you know, it doesn't just go away. It's not like you need to keep on building more and more and more forever. I have so many amazing connections to wonderful and brilliant people. And a part of that is luck. Um, I worked at Maxis and then Maxis went, you know, the EA uh, Emeryville office that I was at um, shut its doors, which in the Bay Area meant that there was a diaspora of all of those brilliantly talented people to all the different tech companies in the Bay Area. And so that network just sort of like bloomed and kind of went nuts through no effort of my own. It was just sort of like a lucky happenstance. So I feel like for me, this is not such a problem. For someone who's coming out of school right now, who really needs to to get that network going um, in order to be able to find the opportunities, this is just going to be such a hard time. And, mm. um, and I'm more worried for sort of the next generation of game developers having to deal with this um, this is going to be a delay, I think, in their career because of that stunted network, um, no conferences and things like that. Yeah, that's a good point. And, um, and I think this is also something that you said on that talk, um, is that now that some of us are in a sort of like better position, um, it's up to us to kind of, you know, pass some of that either knowledge down or, uh, you know, some connection down or something like that so that we can help all these people um, get up uh, as fast as they can and find their careers as fast as they can. Yeah. Yeah. So um, there are, I will say on Facebook, there are a number of like um, game development, I'm sure in all kinds of communities. I mean, I mean, Discord, Facebook, um, those are kind of like the major hubs. I guess there's some email 
email mailing lists, but those ones are kind of like you have to either be in them or not. It's harder to find. There are opportunities. There's mentorship opportunities out there. Um, so I guess that's my best um, on advice on like how to plug into these things without conference opportunities. Yeah. No, that's uh, I, I, that's probably good advice. Um, I don't know. I don't know. You know, personally, uh, any any group to direct maybe any listeners to. Um, but you know, if anybody wants to contribute on Twitter or or in the comments, um, I'll we'll find a way to signal boost it. Um, do you miss anything about the life at Maxis? Um, I miss the people. The that was just like such a phenomenally talented group of people. Um, that were working on such crazy problems like, you know, animating a character without having any idea what the morphology of that character is going to be yet because it's a user-generated content style of game where players are sculpting characters. Um, this is for sport. And we would have to have an animation solution that generalized to all kinds of possible configurations. Um, and, you know, the people who are solving pro the kind those kinds of problems are just like so creative and so open and and um that is the thing i miss the most just being in a you know collection of people any kind of big company you know you might not appreciate it um when you're there but when you leave you sure will so yeah that, that's the thing i miss and and the people were doing such cool things like you know um Carol and Derek, who I worked with, were really into cooking. And I think that sort of like fed into my cooking thing. And Kate Compton was into toy making. She would bring the materials to make silicon molds so that we can like mold our own sculpt and then mold our own silicon replica toys. I mean, Whoa. it wasn't really related to work. It was just kind of like, these are creative people who are curious about how things work. And so they're going to like do experiments and they're going to like show them off to each other. And just being around that... Um, You know, when you work by yourself, if you, it, it's hard to, to show things off. Um, and I think that is something that I really miss. Yeah, no, that's, that's true. And also often, very often creative people have at least one other talent, uh, either they're good at music or something else. Uh, are, are you hiding anything from us aside from your cooking skills that you're now showing to the world? <laughs> oh man, what's my secret creative talent? Uh, I mean... It's not very creative, but I throw a mean frisbee. Oh, interesting. Okay, okay. Um, there's very uh, the, there's many flavors of, of frisbee. Is there any one in particular? Uh, like for example, I, I this is, uh, but there's like uh, Marquez, like M M K B H D. You know the YouTuber he's into. Uh, I don't remember the the name of the sport, but it's like something very competitive frisbee. And there's this like frisbee golf. Is there any specific frisbee flavor uh, <laughs> that you gravitate towards? Um, gosh, I put this out there. I'm so like softcore on it. I I did join um the uh, ultimate frisbee group, and I have a um a oh, frisbee. I think that's the one that I was thinking about. Yeah, and I have a disc golf course near my home, which is ph phenomenal. Um, but I honestly just like going out on a sunny day in a park and kind of rallying with people and. The, I think the thing I really love about Frisbee is if someone is really good at throwing it to you, then that feels really good. Like you made this like perfect sort of like communication of the Frisbee between each other. But if they're really bad, then you get to go run and try to catch it before it hits the ground. And both scenarios are super fun. And so it's really welcoming to people of different skill sets. And 
and maybe there's something to that, like between games, like board games, even and frisbee, like the the board games that are the most fun are a lot of times like welcoming to both new players and experienced people, so that they can both have a good time together. Um, yeah, I, I I really like any kind of yeah, I think I like that a lot. Cool. Thanks for telling me that it's fun to go get <laughs> the frisbee that I just threw, you know, on the parking lot. Uh, that makes me feel better about myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, um, there's a boring question. Oh, what games do you play? It's so boring. So I will skip it. But you're into board games, as I am. Um, so I want to know about that because video games are boring, but board games are fun. <laughs> uh, I'm obviously kidding. But um, I'm really interested in, in knowing uh, what board games uh, you're into. Oh, well... You know, um, right now on my table, what's been out and hasn't gone away basically since the pandemic has started is Agricola. Nice. That game is just, what I, what I love about this game is, I mean, it's an oldie, but it's a goodie. It's not anything like, you know, just hot off the presses. But you have these giant stacks of cards in that game. But in each game, you deal only seven cards of, you know, there's two types, occupation and, and improvement. You deal only seven cards to a player and they never draw any more cards in the game. And so the variance between your games is just, you know, trying to like figure out within the that set of cards, what is a good combo. It's just so different game to game that I feel like it. it's just, I don't know. I just love that um, where... I think a lot of games kind of like will try to win you over with like a glut of content and you're drawn through it, like every card in the entire game through the process of the game. Um, I, I like that, that, that one has so much restraint to it. And, and um, I'll give a little shout out to um, Res Arcana, which is the new game by Tom Lehman. It has a similar property. Um, you are given just a small su subset of cards. And then as you're playing, you only see those, you know, that, that set of cards and um and so the games feel just wildly different game to game and it's um it's really a treat. Uh now I I, I know the question I know the answer to this question. So don't lie, but is there a board game idea in your in your drawer? A board game idea in my drawer. Yeah, um, I think I feel because I feel like everybody has one. Like every game video game designer that suddenly steps into that world is like oh, and ha has one in it, the drawer. So do you have one? I do. Um I know it. I knew so it. <laughs> yeah, everyone does. Um, so I had this idea for this game um, that is like the premise is what was going on in it is <laughs> mostly an excuse to like use my 3D printer. Um, the premise is you are in the apocalypse, but you are like a Michelin star chef. And so your job is that you don't want to lose your three stars. But it's really hard to get the in like ingredients because all around town there's like zombies and everything's exploded. So you have to like go into these places. It's almost like quests oh, and like it. find the ingredients so that you can make um, your your perfect uh, your perfect little meal. And um, and I found these like brilliant. It, it's such an art and concept driven game. So it's probably never going to work because that's my style, which is not probably successful, but, um, I, f I just found these components that I loved and I, I like wanted to play with my 3d printer. So it's not something I think will ever go to market. Just have like a fun hobby for me to like learn about board game design. Well, I think it's a brilliant idea and, uh, please let me know if you want me to cut this out of the, of the, of the podcast because somebody's going to steal it. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, 
I think the premise is just brilliant. Oh. I, I, I do. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I know that pitching a board game is hard and, and, you know, components and especially, I mean, I don't want you to go into detail, but especially if you're doing something interesting with components and, you know, something that gets the attention uh, when, you know, looking at the table and it's like, oh, what is that game over there? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the premise alone oh. is so good. <laughs> Thanks. Maybe I can team up with someone who actually can like design the systems because I just want to do the art. <laughs> well, well, yeah. I mean, there's uh, plenty of very good developers out there. Um, I might tell you about uh, a couple of them uh, after the podcast, but um, uh, no, I think that the premise is just brilliant. Uh, and uh, huh. if you can do the art for it, you know, uh, plus, you know, Temple Gates presents. Uh, I don't know. This is a business proposition that writes itself. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm I'm curious to, to hear more. Uh, anyway, um, we just did over an hour, uh, and uh, I had a lot of fun uh, talking with you. Um, I, again, just to go back to the very beginning, um, I felt it was interesting uh, to hear how you were approaching business uh, during that GTC talk. Uh, I I could sort of like feel kind of the struggle and and you know the the hustle of of trying to making it. Um, but it seems like you're having fun, and I hope that's the case. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, certainly more fun now than it has been at other times um, because things are, are going well. Um, but yes, it has been a struggle. And for everyone out there who is struggling, like, please just know that you're not alone and that everyone is struggling. And I think even everyone who's successful went through lots of struggles and lots of failures. And so if you are struggling, you are on the right path. Don't beat yourself up. That's very true. And if you want to see more of uh, Theresa's struggles, especially related to food, uh, you can find her on Twitter at T Daringer. Uh, is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and uh, I really look forward to see more of your recipes and, uh, they will fuel me to get a, to become a better cook. <laughs> nice. Uh, thank you so much. There is a, I had a lot of fun. Uh, and um, you're welcome back at any time. Uh, do you have any final words for our listeners? Huh. Um, well, um, please keep an eye out. If you like playing board games and you like them digitally, please keep an eye out for Roll for the Galaxy dropping very soon. Um, and if you want to get in on the beta, it's Temple Games Gate. <clears throat> excuse me, templegatesgames.com slash beta. That's going to be open for a little bit more. Um, so hopefully I'll see you in game. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much again and uh, speak to you soon. Thank you. Thank you.